welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brabeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And we have a short story this week. We are revisiting our uh, newish friend, uh, the mysterious Mr. Quinn. Harley Quinn in the house. I mean, barely, barely in the house. <laughs> barely in the house. It's true. That Harley Quinn likes to flit in and then right back out of a story, doesn't he? Yes, he does. So <laughs> we're talking about a story called The Shadow on the Glass. It's the second story in that collection, The Mysterious Mr. Quinn. So that collection came out in April 1930. That was in the UK. But this story in particular was published in the Grand Magazine in the UK in October of 1924. Right. And the Mysterious Mr. Quinn's, again, just as a reminder, were not written as a series. Christie wrote them when she felt like it. Yeah. They're not Poirot. She wasn't writing these on commission in the same way that she was writing a lot of the Poirots in particular. Mm-hmm. Since Poirot was in such demand. No one was seemed to be <laughs> demanding Harley Quinn so much. <laughs> Nobody was really cra- craving <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Quinn. <laughs> he was always a favorite of hers, though. I guess he just didn't take off in the popular consciousness the way others did. But, you know, as we've discussed, I like him. <laughs> Maybe it's because, spoiler alert, he only shows up for, like, three pages of the story. <laughs> well, which is why we should really say they're, they're Harley Quinn stories, but they're also Mr. Satterthwaite stories, because he really is the... He is. The, it's, a two, it's a two-hander. These stories are a two-hander. Mr. Satterthwaite is there from beginning to end. And right, he is. He's always a delight. As, as much as, uh, like, cream-colored wallpaper can be a delight, he is. Oof. Wow. Oh, Harsh no, words I know. for I'm, Mr. I'm, Satterthwaite. I, I like Mr. Satterthwaite. It's just he himself thinks he blends into the background. So He's a bit of a an affluent wallflower. I, I would say so. <laughs> so. All right, let's talk about our victim. Well, we have two victims, at least. Mm, at least. It's certainly a dual victim scenario here that we are presented with. First up is Mrs. Moira Scott, who is a pretty 20-year-old, married to a man more than double her age, Mr. Richard Scott, and she is found shot dead. And I believe her maiden name was extremely Irish. And given that Mm. Moira is rather an Irish name, I'm going to, and that she has red gold hair, I'm going to go with her being Irish. Yeah, I would assume so. And uh, then we also have Captain Jimmy Allenson, who is young and handsome, and he was formerly. He's got white teeth. Mm-hmm. Which for 1924, it's like, hey, you're good to go. Definitely so. Uh, and he was stationed in Cairo. Um, he is also found shot dead in the garden. They're found shot dead essentially side by side, or at least within a close proximity of each Correct. other. Correct. Let's talk about suspects. Well, first and foremost, we have Mr. Richard Scott, who is the husband of Moira Scott, obviously. He's uh, mm-hmm. in his 40s. He is, I'm sure this will shock you to find out, Kemper, he's tanned and handsome. What? (laughs) Christy describes him as a handsome man of action, and she happens to mention that he's tanned. Shocking. And he is a big game hunter slash explorer type. And when I read the description, I'm so sorry. All I could do was the... Where all the monkeys throw nuts. If I stay here, I'll go nuts. Hooray, hooray, hooray. 
Wait, what is that? It's Animal Crackers. It's Captain Spaulding's intro. He shows up at a country house because they want a famous African explorer at their like fancy dinner party. The Margaret Dumont character invites Captain Spaulding, Groucho Marx, who is a famous African explorer and big game hunter as a party guest. Yeah, that's totally what they're doing here. That's exactly they what want, they're doing here. <laughs> they want a celebrity. They want a little bit of, yes. of action. Correct. Well, and, and also on that same note, we've got a second tanned and handsome big game hunter slash explorer type. We get it, Agatha. We get it. Although <laughs> he's a little bit more of a subdued version of Mr. Richard Scott. And this is Major John Porter, who is Richard Scott's best friend from their time together in Africa. And then we have the host and the hostess, Mr. and Mrs. Unkerton. And they're not really suspects, but they're the hosts. And they also seem really pretty awful so let's just call them suspects and hope for a twist i like it. yeah and even if i mentioned that mr scott like really isn't a groucho marx obviously the animal crackers analogy does apply to mrs unkerton because she's exactly this sort of absurd somewhat oblivious probably a little frumpy wealthy hostess who just wants to impress her guests captain spaulding It is indeed a great honor to welcome you to my poor home. All right, so next we have not really a suspect here, but one never knows. We all read Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Mr. Satterthwaite, the aforementioned, he is in all these Harley Quinn stories, and he is wealthy. He's a bit of a hanger-on, but in a kind of superior, supercilious way. I know. It's it's not even like he's a hanger-on. It's just a little bit like, why is he invited to these parties? He's just one of those people who gets invited everywhere because he knows the right people, and right. He, he tells stories well. He knows how to entertain groups of people. He's useful at a party. Right. And also useful is Lady Cynthia, who's his friend. I would not call her a friend of the Unkertons, even though she's been invited by them. She actually thinks very little of them. and She's, she's very a, gossipy. A, a huge gossip. Then finally, we have Mrs. Iris Staverton, who is a dangerous woman of early middle age who the Unkertons have ill-advisedly invited to their gathering. And she's sort of a female equivalent to Richard Scott and John Porter in that she's a woman of action who also has gone a-hunting in them. the wilds of Africa. Yeah, right? she's apparently as good of a shot as they are. That's interesting. I don't think you see that character every day in a Christie story. Not so much. Um, you know, she's also tanned and blonde, but I have to say that in the description of the story, that didn't go so well for Mrs. Staverton. The handsomeness of the men is driven home a bit more than Mrs. Iris Staverton's looks. Yeah. I would say. I think that's yeah, a it's statement. a little unfortunate. Let's talk about the world as it appears to be. So Mr. Satterthwaite, he's been invited to this country weekend. This time is at Greenway's house, which is an historic country home that is very well known because it is uh, haunted <laughs> by the quote-unquote watching cavalier who is a face in a windowpane ghost who will not go away. And here's where I'm going to make my first of two observations 
having to do with Agatha Christie's own life, Catherine. Mm-hmm. And that is, do you remember the name of the house that Agatha Christie bought much later in life in 1938, to be exact, with her second husband, Max Mallow, and that became her primary residence for most of her remaining life, which was decades? That would be Greenway. House. Yes, I'm very aware. And this is Greenway's house. And it does seem to be related. The house itself, it doesn't match up exactly in terms of layout and history, but it seems to be a direct inspiration. And I think that's fascinating because Greenway was in her neck of the woods. She was clearly aware of it and must have been aware of it since she was a child. And as far back as 1924, she had her eye on it to the extent where she set this short story on its grounds 14 Hasht- years before she bought the house. Uh, hashtag life goals. Seriously. I mean, again, the woman loved her real estate. Oh my gosh. She loved to buy a house and to renovate a house and to care for a house and its grounds. You know how I feel about that, Kemper. You and Christy, I feel like, understand each other on this level. So real estate. The setting is important here. The estate is important. It's central to to the story and to the mystery. So I just think that's really interesting that 1924 Greenway, I thought that I was misreading it at first. So I was like, that doesn't make any sense. How is that possible? But I know I had to go, I flipped back and I was like, Oh, Hmm. Interesting. But what we find out about this is that the original family of the house was this family called the Elliot's. I guess they built the house. They had a relative who was a cavalier And his wife had a lover who was a roundhead who killed the cavalier. This is like eighth grade social studies rearing its head here. The roundheads and the cavaliers, I I seriously don't think I've heard those terms since I was 15 years old. I know. And I'm so sorry to everybody. But the roundhead was fleeing the scene of the crime. He looked up into the window and he saw the dead man, the cavalier, complete with his feathered cap, staring at him from an upstairs window. So, Kemper, would you like to explain what that is to our listeners who maybe don't remember eighth grade world eighth grade social studies lessons? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, so we've got the Cavaliers versus the Roundheads, right? We are around the time of King Charles the first and second, and then of course Oliver Cromwell as well. Mm-hmm. So, this is what mid seventeenth century ish. Mm-hmm. We're in the mid sixteen hundreds. The English Civil War. Yes, the Cavaliers were a name for the royalists who supported King Charles the first during that English Civil War, and then the Roundheads were more or less the parliamentarians who believed that monarchy was not a divine right and that the monarchy should either be completely abolished or, at the very least, the monarchy should be overseen by parliament. And, of course, it was the more extreme faction led by Oliver Cromwell that gained ascendancy, resulting in the establishment of the Commonwealth of England, followed by the Protectorate, and then Cromwell appointed his own son as leader. So we're getting into all sorts of funny business there. And then eventually we had the reestablishment of the monarchy under Charles II, and then the Glorious Revolution to follow that. And essentially the English Civil War, while it led to this odd interregnum period of the Commonwealth, also established major fundamental changes in the workings of the monarchy forever after. 
And the roundheads were called roundheads because the many Puritan and Presbyterian sects in and around England at the time tended very much to be supporters of Parliament. And some Puritans, not all, but many, wore their hair closely cropped around the head or flat to make an obvious contrast between their appearance and the appearance of more courtly and, they would say, frivolous men of fashion who wore their hair long in ringlets, and that would be the cavalier look that we already referenced in terms of the man in the glass. The traditional cavalier had long hair and perhaps even a fabulous mustachio along the lines of what our own dear Monsieur Poirot might sport and is often depicted with a hat with many feathers and basically as much adornment as possible even though, you know, it's interesting to note that there were many roundheads who were members of the Church of England, as were, of course, many cavaliers. So it's not as if the roundheads versus the cavaliers were necessarily different types of Protestants, although I suppose we can make the argument, and many do, that they tended to be different kinds of Protestants and to have different looks, hence the origin of those rather curious terms, roundheads and cavaliers. Right. So it's both a uh, lover's quarrel, which we should keep in mind, by the way, and a political one. Right. And it's interesting because I wonder if this belies some some vague royalist leanings on Christie's part, because I think most people would assume that the cheating scoundrel would be the the long-haired cavalier as opposed to the you know the roundheads they were puritans hence not the most naturally depicted as debaucherous and lecherous it's interesting that the cheater is the roundhead and the one cheated upon the wronged man is the royalist cavalier I think it probably would have gone the other way as if most people had to guess which way it went. Well, you you know, you say you want a revolution, like you kind of <laughs> sympath- you sympathize generally in a story from a narrative perspective with the revolutionary, not with the one resistant to change. Tangents aside, the watching cavalier haunting doesn't merely impact that pane of glass where he keeps showing up, but apparently the room itself, because that window isn't a window. It's blocked off from the room by a wall. And it's also, on top of that, the haunting is not just like a creepster showing up in the window pane. It's that everybody who stays in the room seems to have really bad luck. The couples all break up. So anytime a couple has been in there, there's been some sort of infidelity or some terrible breakup of some kind. It's a haunted room. It's a haunted room. It's not a fully haunted house, but it is certainly a haunted room. So unfortunately for them, Mr. Scott and his very young wife are staying in that room. Again, that would be Moira, one of our victims. Even more unfortunate... It is rumored that the scandalous Mrs. Staverton once had an affair in Africa on one of those hunts. Apparently they were hunting more than big game with Mm. Mr. Scott. (laughs) You know, Christy loves a love triangle. We've got a little bit of a at least potential love triangle. Well, and I mean, we have a love triangle in the haunted room, too. Yeah, a love triangle through the ages. Yes. It leads Mr. Satterthwaite to quite a degree of worry because he's found out from Lady Cynthia in particular that uh, it's a terribly ill-advised idea to invite Mrs. Staverton to this party because of her alleged dalliance in Africa with Mr. Scott. And Lady Cynthia herself knows all these people as she was previously living in Cairo and she was bored there and she became friends with, of course, 
the charming young Captain Jimmy Allenson. And also in Cairo were Mrs. Staverton, Major Porter, Mr. Scott, and of course, the soon-to-be Mrs. Scott, Moira. Right, and this is actually where I will go on a slight tangent. Second autobiographical note here from Christie's own life. As I've mentioned many times before, she did spend some time in Cairo when she was younger. Mm -hmm. And she was essentially a Moira type in Cairo, and she did a lot of courting with older gentlemen. I believe that's where she first developed her predilection for older, gray-templed, bronzed colonel types. There were several that (laughs) fell in love with her. One One even asked her mother for her hand in marriage. And she only found out after the fact. Her mother was like, oh yeah, no, that was not going to happen. But she was very much within this Cairo society. And she even wrote her first book, Snow Upon the Desert, about a bunch of different people within this courting society in Cairo. So it was something that, again, this was written really early. I think this is where we can tell that this was an early Christie story. It's written in 1924. So I think this was all... Not in the quite distant past yet for her. And um, I would imagine she was probably drawing on some of those earlier writings. That Mm -hmm. novel was never published, but we did get that title in our beloved, or at least my beloved, Death on the Nile, which we covered two episodes ago in Salabay Otterborn's book, Snow Upon the Desert's Face. Just just love Christy making fun of herself. But yeah, (laughs) she was all about the Cairo hijinks. And it sounds like there certainly were a lot of Cairo hijinks to be had among these people, and that will turn out to be significant. It will. Everything goes sort of okay at Greenway's house for a little bit. Um, Mr. Satterthwaite, despite his anxiety, he temporarily calms down. Right, and it's like he's anxious, but like you know he sort of is also eager for a scene. I mean, they all are. They're all like, ooh, I hope nothing happens. Well, and at the very beginning of it, Lady Cynthia is basically, uh, basically implies that Mr. Satterthwaite just shows up to want drama. And we kind of know that she's right about that. Right. It makes me like Mr. Satterthwaite even more. You know, Lady Cynthia, I think, sees one of her own in Mr. Satterthwaite. She knows <laughs> that he just sits there and listens to her gossip. I'm sensing and some disdain for Mr. Satterthwaite, Catherine. I think you're being a little judgy. Uh, I, I I would be with them. <laughs> exactly. So would I. I, be, I mean, this is the, the 21st century meme is past the popcorn. <laughs> right. That's exactly that's exactly what they're doing. Shoving fists of it into their mouth. Did you see yeah, what she let did? Me, oh. Let me watch like how this implodes. Uh, <laughs> let me see whose so, life gets destroyed first. So there's Statler and Waldorf. That is exactly who Lady Cynthia and Mr. Satterthwaite are. They are sitting in the balcony watching the Muppet Show go totally awry and then just making it throwing. And loving every second of it. What was that? It's called the medium sketch. The medium sketch? Yeah, it wasn't rare and it certainly wasn't well done. (laughs) The person by far who seems to be the most worked up by all this is Major Porter, who can't stop muttering to himself and being generally miserable about the fact that Iris has shown up. She had been part of their last hunting expedition. And again, she's this quote unquote dangerous woman. She's a a damn fine shot. And um, he does seem to be a bit fixated on Iris, but at least as as it first appears, he's fixated as just on how inappropriate it is, how inappropriate right. it is that she's here. But he, he, he certainly seems to talk and think about her an awful lot. 
he does, then naturally the ghost face has also reappeared on the glass. So Mrs. Ankerton insists that she is replacing it during all of her guests being there because they all are curious about this ghost story and go look. And of course, there's a ghost face on the glass. Major Porter, he's already worked up right and he's increasingly Mm -hmm. convinced that something terrible is going to happen i do by the way like the fact that you can only see the ghost if you're far away from Mm -hmm. the estate it's only at a great distance that the image of the cavalier appears in the glass from closer up it's just i guess a smear or a smudge or or just nothing and that actually reminded me of i feel like that's a a little bit of a of a trope within some country estate thrillers most famously of course the turn of the screw Mm -hmm. where speaking of high-strung people getting vibes are unnamed governess. I don't even think she's ever named right in, in the story who's narrating that story sees a figure from afar and it's really scary. And it's really creepy to see it from afar. I like that, that the ghost only visualizes when you've got enough distance from the estate. It also allows Mr. Satterthwaite and major Porter to go on lots of walks. Get a lot of exercise out there. Yeah. Mr. Saturday is actually not that cool with all the exercise that he's getting. No. He does a lot of panting. Yeah. It seems like, again, he's very used to just sitting in his balcony row. So what happens, Catherine? Well, they hear gunshots. What? Gunshots? On one of their long walks. Not one, but two gunshots. So they pantingly rush back towards the house into the gardens, and they... Find someone. Who do they find, Kemper? They find Iris Mm. with a literal smoking gun. Yes. (laughs) I don't know if the gun is actually smoking, but she does have... more or less. Yeah. She does have a gun in her hand, and she's standing over the two very much dead bodies of Moira Scott and Captain Allenson, both of whom have been shot through the chest. Moira is shot through, whereas in Captain Allison's case, the bullet is lodged in his body. So Mm -hmm. Moira has both an entrance and an exit wound. Captain Allison only has an entrance wound. Iris claims in shock, obviously, that she only picked the gun up. But suffice it to say, no one except Major Porter is willing to believe her and the police are called in. The other detail that we get here in this scene is from Mr. Satterthwaite. And he notices that Mrs. Scott's earring also appears to have been ripped out as she fell because there's a spot of blood on her earlobe Mm -hmm. and no earring, and she does have an earring on the other ear. So that's what he at least surmises happened there. Mm -hmm. That's his theory. So So it would seem in the world as it it appears that Iris got jealous of Moira Scott and shot her, and Captain Allison perhaps was trying to protect her, and Iris shot him as well. Yeah, it's what it would seem like. Iris is in some deep doo-doo. She's going to be hanged. Yep. Let's talk about some clues here. (laughs) Cairo is clue number one. If we think about where these characters Madden, we obviously discount Mr. Satterthwaite here. All the characters, with the exception of Mr. Satterthwaite, uh, and I guess the Unkertons, I think, Mm -hmm. had previously all met in Cairo. And so the deduction here is, even if it's unclear that all these people know each other, as we know from let's say certain other famous stories, we should never underestimate how a cast of characters might know each other. And we can make a reasonable assumption here that they probably all do. They're all the same class and they're all in Cairo at the same time. So Lady Cynthia might have been out being entertained by Captain Jimmy, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't know, for example, Mr. Scott. 
any of these people could potentially know and have history with any others. There mm-hmm. may be connections among this cast that are not right. obvious. Clue number two, <laughs> the ghost face killer clue. Yo, dwelling in the past flashbacks when I was young. Whoever thought I have a baby girl and so, yeah, this is a Christie story involving a supernatural through line. Christie doesn't do ghosts unless, of course, she does, but that is very <laughs> rare. And this is a man ghost, not a lady ghost, so this ghost can't really be real. Right. There's got to be something significant about that blocked-off window that somehow keeps having a facial imprint on it. Behind a closed wall. It's a specific architectural clue here. Right. The room in which that window appears or the space within which that window exists is walled off, right? There's, it's actually mm-hmm. closed off by a wall. So mm-hmm. the deduction here is that it can't be completely closed off. Somehow it has to be accessible to an actual human being whose face was pressed up against that window, either for some reason or allowing that person to see something. We might also go a step further here and recall our old friend, the Secret of Chimneys. I don't know. Is it our old friend? I think it's at least our frenemy, if not Nemesis. And uh, the fact that this is, again, 1920s Christie here. This is Thriller Christie. Nemesis is a later book, Kemper. (laughs) That's true. That's true. But Christie is not above a secret passage or two. Hint, hint. So clue number three, the bullet wounds. Two shots were fired. Only one of the casings is found in the bodies, in the body of Jimmy Allenson, right? The other bullet has gone straight through Myra Scott. And additionally, there's no singeing on the bodies. So here's the thing. They appear to have been shot nearly at point-blank range by Iris because she's standing essentially on top of them with a smoking gun. She's standing pretty close to them, yeah. Yeah, but that seems curious, right? So where is one of the bullets? Why does Moira have blood on her ear? Why is there only one bullet in the body? Is, Is there another solution to this? There is, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So clue number four is the age difference between Mr. and Mrs. Scott. We are told that Mr. Scott is significantly older than Moira Scott. And uh, this happens a lot in Christie. It should be cause for an eyebrow raise at a minimum. We have had other short stories in which that age differential has been indicative of an obsessive love coming from the older man or just something not being totally on par between the two partners and thereby leading to something nefarious. So the deduction here is, does one of these people benefit (laughs) in some way from this relationship? And I think if we ask that question to ourselves, we might surmise that Moira Scott is probably getting some level of financial stability from a successful big game hunter such as Mr. Scott. Well, he's getting a benefit from, you know, marrying a 20 year old too, I suppose. Of course. And he's getting a benefit, a very obvious benefit for marrying her. If that a 40 something year old would have anything in common with a 20 year old. Right. I mean, it's a little, given the context of other Christie stories, I think it's a fair clue on its face I think you do have to make a leap to say, oh, there's an age difference here, so clearly something's wrong. 
But given that we've but seen it, it so many times within yes. Christie stories, I think that for an, for an astute reader, it's a fair assumption to make. It's also mentioned in this story. Or at least a fair theory to ponder, Correct. especially given, again, the fact that Moira Scott being the younger partner here was perhaps spending a lot of time in Cairo with people who were more her age. So perhaps mm. all is not mm. as it seems between these two age mismatched lovebirds. Yep. So here we have a resolution and it looks like originally Iris is going to go to the gallows. Then miracle of miracles. There is a knock on the door. Who might that be Kemper? Well, I I forgot that Harley Quinn was even within this story because he's (laughs) in it for so little, but it's Harley Quinn. Keep in mind, this is in fact a Harley Quinn story, although Mm -hmm. you might not know that, but he is the knock on the door and Satterthwaite recognizes him, but he's not there for Satterthwaite. He's there for Mr. Unkerton. Harley Quinn was going to, to see Mr. Unkerton about a picture. Yes, about a picture. Sure he was. (laughs) <laughs> I think yes. Harley Quinn might be a drug dealer. <laughs> or something. A picture? Mm. I know. And every time he shows up, it feels incredibly questionable. Does Harley Quinn says, we must leave our little picture chat until another time. He seems quite willing and eager to drop the pretext for his visit. I mean, to be honest... I'm not entirely convinced that Mr. Quinn is not secretly Mephistopheles. We haven't even begun to plumb the depths, I think, of Harley Quinn. We'll get there as we analyze more of these stories in excruciating detail. But yeah, Harley Quinn is here. Mr. Satterthwaite is overjoyed because he wants Mr. Quinn to hear about this case and try to figure out what happened here because it's just this isn't sitting well with certainly Major Porter who doesn't seem to think that Iris did it and Mr. Satterthwaite also is not satisfied and Inspector Winkfield I have to say is (laughs) one of Christie's more pathetic inspectors he's described as a shrewd looking forceful man of 40 odd but I think he's shrewd in look only he doesn't seem to have a lot as to method and order Poirot would eat him alive. Yeah, well, his job is to just sit there, so. So what does Harley Quinn do, Catherine? Harley Quinn essentially prompts everybody else. That's what he does. He's a catalyst. He's a catalyst. But I actually want to, because I love the moments in which Christy insists on Harley Quinn having some sort of look reminiscent of Harley oh, Quinn. Oh, gosh. It's, it's, yeah, let's, it, not, let's uh, not pass over that. Let's not skip that. Mr. Quinn we? sat down. <laughs> The red-shaded lamp threw a broad band of colored light over the checked pattern of his overcoat and left his face in shadow, almost as though he wore a mask. (laughs) All right, let's move on. So Mr. Quinn is a catalyst. He prompts people to basically just think about this in a different way. This is what he says. I'm not a magician. I'm not even a criminologist. But I will tell you one thing. I believe in the value of impressions. In any time of crisis, there is always one moment that stands out from all the others, one picture that remains when all else has faded. And then he prompts Mr. Satterthwaite to conjure up the moment that made the strongest impression on him. And what Mr. Satterthwaite thinks about actually is the moment when he stood alone by the bodies and looked down on Moira Scott and she was lying on her side, her hair was ruffled, and there was a spot of blood on her little ear. And what they realize is that Mr. Satterthwaite's 
theory as to her earring having been torn off can't have been correct. Right, but Mr. Satterthwaite doesn't exactly realize that, right? It's a combination of the group sitting in the room that she's on the wrong side of the body. Yeah, it's the group because Mr. Satterthwaite tells everyone her earring must have been torn out when she fell. And then Christy writes, but it sounded a little improbable as he said it. And then Major Porter says she was lying on her left side. I suppose it was that ear. No, said Mr. Satterthwaite quickly. It was her right ear. Then the inspector coughs because he basically, you know, is hungry and wants to go eat his dinner and says, I found this in the grass. And then he holds Mm -hmm. up a loop of gold wire. Porter says, well, that thing can't have been wrenched to pieces by a mere fall. It's more as though it had been shot away by a bullet. And then Mr. Satterthwaite cries, so it was. It was a bullet. It must have been. So they have gotten to this revelation via the prompting of Mr. Harley Quinn. And this is really important because what happened, Catherine? There's only one bullet involved. There are two bullets, but there's only one bullet that killed them. Correct. And so here's what happened. Moira Scott was having an affair with her longtime lover. Jimmy Allenson of the White Teeth. (laughs) Captain Jimmy with the White Teeth. And she knew him from Cairo, but she instead married Mr. Scott because he was famous and had money. Mr. Scott happens to be kind of weirdly intrigued by this ghost story thing. And he basically wants to figure out what's happening with this haunted room. And he, I guess, surprisingly quickly, given that apparently nobody else in the history of the house has figured this out, he figures out that, in fact, there's a false wall with a spring. Right. So he gets behind that blocked up wall to the window that had been boarded up for all these years. So he is kind of chilling inside the secret wall and Mm -hmm. happens to look out into look out the window where he notices that his brand new 20 year old wife and the captain are going to town on each other in the garden his response to that suffice it to say isn't good although here's where this story gets a little bit questionable to me Mm -hmm. (laughs) because he goes to get a gun which is the impulse that i guess i understand in this story, but he also grabs a woman's feathered hat. This might be where the story loses me a little bit. It's a cover because if anyone else happens to see him, they'll just think that it's the ghost. And Mr. Satterthwaite and Major Porter do, in fact, see him. Of course it's a cover. They do see him and they do think it's a ghost. But I have to say that uh, I don't think there's anybody on earth who would think that quickly to go find a woman's hat with a feather and grab a gun and go back into a secret wall. Yeah, I mean, there was a hat cupboard. It was his wife's hat cupboard, right? I mean, he was just doing it on the off chance that anyone saw him in the this window. Goes, this goes a little bit into the territory of... A Christmas tragedy? Yeah, this this is a little bit into the territory of a Christmas tragedy as far as costume changes go, but... Um, yeah, I think this know. one is more plausible, and he needed to, apparently, because Mr. Satterthwaite and Major Porter would have seen him when mm-hmm. they were peering into the window from a distance, and what they saw was a cavalier, the cavalier ghost. Right. And so what he does is he opens the window up and he, you know, he's a big game hunter in Africa and a champion and he's famous for it. And so he goes out the window and he takes a single shot basically and he shoots his wife Moira through her back and then through her shoots her lover. Right, because they're pressed up against each other in an embrace. So he shoots clean through Moira and then the bullet lands in Captain Allison's back. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or in Captain Allison's body. 
Yeah, and then he shoots again, which is why he ends up shooting her ear. Right, he just shoots again, which is, it's a little unclear why he does that, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, he does. It's, again, it's a red herring clue because it doesn't really matter. I, you know what? I take the bullet clue back. It does matter, actually, the bullet clue, because you would think that there were two shots fired, one for each person, unless the second bullet was the one that glanced off her ear. It gets you to the notion that the, they were the, shot because they were next to each other. Because they were embracing. They had yeah. to be pressed up against mm-hmm. each other for that to make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's I, yeah, I, it's it's a true clue. And poor Iris really was just hanging out in the garden. But unfortunately for her, Mr. Scott had always had a thing for her. And despite the rumors, they had not had an affair. So he sees her coming, throws the gun out the window so that she immediately comes across it and basically frames her for a double double homicide because he hates her, too, because she never succumbed to his affections. affections. But you know what? We are not going to end with that sort of a loveless situation here. It's not all tragedy. We've got a little love connection, don't we? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, sentimental Christy comes back here. It turns out that Iris herself had been in love with Major Porter this entire time. And thankfully for her and for true romance, Mr. Quinn is there to prompt this revelation. And Major Porter, who obviously also is in love with her, runs to her. And then the inspector goes off to arrest and presumably send Mr. Scott to the gallows. He literally says, go to her. (laughs) (laughs) yes if i were you i should go to her now i will said porter he turned and left the room and that is the final line of this short story for a tale of a double homicide and a fake ghost it certainly has a sweet ending ending. (laughs) (laughs) but you know what this had some robust clues it's harder to do that than it seems to have a functional mystery and then also infuse it with the trappings of a Harley Quinn story. There's there's a fair amount going on here. And I did appreciate the setting of Greenway's house, especially given that Christy would one day live there. I liked all of the house details and I actually think the clues are pretty good in this. Christy in 1924, she is honing her craft here to become the expert mystery puzzler that she would become very, very soon. The queen of crime. The queen of crime, one might say. That is The Shadow on the Glass. Join us next time for Death on the Nile. Wait, what? That's right. I did not misspeak just now. We are doing... Death on the Nile, the Parker Pine short story. A little-known short story within the Parker Pine Investigates collection, written, of course, before the novel Death on the Nile, which we have already covered so recently. Uh, We thought it would be fun to cover the other Death on the Nile, and Catherine loves revisiting her friend Parker Pine. So I I did not want to deprive her of this opportunity. I know. I know that all of you loyal listeners out there know my great love. Just deep, deep affection Mm -hmm. that you hold for for (laughs) Parker Pine. But you know what? We'll We'll see how much Joni Mitchell we can play in this upcoming Parker Pine episode. So maybe it will all be worth it. I have a feeling it will have significantly less Joni Mitchell, but you never know. I mean, I can keep my fingers crossed, Kemper. <laughs> As a reminder, we should let you know that our next novel is Appointment with Death, of course, a Poirot novel. 
And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. As always, please email us at allaboutthedame@gmail.com or find us on Twitter. We're at allaboutthedame, and Catherine is at Robcat. And we're also on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. We are also on Instagram at All About Agatha. And please take a moment to rate and review us. It really helps out the podcast, helps other people find it. And we appreciate all of the rating and reviewing that you've done thus far. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.